0: the lectionary assigns uh, John chapter 11 for this particular Sunday, almost as a precursor to the forthcoming Easter Sunday, and maybe that's good. Maybe in the midst of a Lenten life, we need a little preemptive Easter. So I'm speaking today about uh, the, the raising of Lazarus, but before that, of course, was the tragic death of Lazarus, and you may know that Uh, The Bible calls death the last enemy to be defeated. It really is in so many ways the ultimate enemy because death spells the terminus for all of our goals, all of our endeavors, all of our improvement, all of our desires, our wishes, our hopes. Uh, In this life, you know, we all have a lot of growth that can be accomplished, physical growth, Psychological development, uh, mental evolution, uh, cardiac work that really can take place. You know, our bones grow in density, our uh, musculature develops over time, um, our health can increase. You know, some of you have stopped smoking. That's great. You know, or you're reducing. You know, from two packs to one. That's good, right? You're developing. Some of you have reconciled with people from whom you have been estranged for many years, and you know, you're seeing some real traction, relational traction. Um, Some of you are artists, and you've really worked to perfect your craft, and you sculpt now in a way that you couldn't imagine sculpting five years ago. I mean, it's really coming together for you. This is life within God's economy. There can be development, there can be growth, there can be change for individuals and families, even nations, Um, and, and yet, And yet, while we experience momentum and gains and recovery, it seems like it's all in vain because all potential in all cases is cut off. In all cases is cut off. And all of those gains silenced by the specter, the invasive specter of death. Death spells the annihilation of all that is good and growing, death wins minute by minute, hour by hour, eon after eon. There's a cryptic line uh, from uh, Dr. Hannibal Lecter in a haunting scene from uh, the novel by Thomas Harris in which this rather sophisticated sadist says these words, Occasionally, I drop a teacup to the floor just to see it shatter. I'm disappointed when it doesn't pick itself up and come back together again. It never does. All things are too far gone. Enter John chapter 11, where eternal life himself proves that even death, the great terminus, can be undone. I'd like to spend my time with you this evening talking about three themes from the raising of Lazarus. All three, I believe, are not only present in the text, but important for us to consider as we process of the death of loved ones, maybe our own personal fears regarding mortality. Theme one, agony. Agony. It's a very rich, pronounced theme within this passage, because after all, Mary and Martha utter nearly the same speech to Jesus. They say to him something that is eminently sensible. Lord, if you had been here my brother would not have died. They know that because Jesus had prevented the deaths of hundreds of people. I mean, he involved himself. And not just involved himself, he involved his miraculous presence and power in the lives of people whom he didn't even know. And here he is with these supposed friends that he seems to have ignored. And they are saying, "If, if you read between the lines, if you had cared enough, You could have stopped this, you know, but you chose not to. And many of us, by the way, will have those sorts of questions rise up in us whenever tragedy strikes. Tragedy that was completely preventable. It didn't have to be this way. And yet here we are, in the midst of a divorce, in the midst of a child who is ailing, uh, in the midst of... uh, a complicated situation with a parent that can't be overcome through goodwill or psychoanalysis. If you were here, if you really cared, you could have solved this before it started, but you chose in your omnipotence not to. And so they're crying out from that place, that agonized place, both with the same speech. Now, Mary and Martha, as you may know from Luke's account, were very, very different women, dispositionally speaking. Um, uh, one was type A, one was type B. One was productive, one was contemplative. Martha was the one cooking dinner, making sure everybody's doing okay, making sure everybody was you know, eating the right kosher foods, if anybody had certain food allergies, if somebody, you know, had gluten issues, and she was managing the kitchen extremely well, but getting really miffed that her, uh, her sister was being contemplative, staring, you know, doe-eyed at Jesus, listening to his every word, and tries to triangulate, Jesus told my sister to come in here and help me, Jesus then reproves her, I mean, it's just a scene, it's a scene. But here's what's fascinating, When their brother dies, it doesn't matter. When somebody that you love is taken away from you, it doesn't matter what your personal disposition is, how stoic you are or how epicurean. You're all going to experience grief. Grief is the great leveler. It takes the type A person and the type B person and completely devastates them both to the point where they both have the same speech on their lips. If you cared, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I want to underscore the fact that this is not sacrilege to express our misery to heaven or even our misery about heaven. My evidence for this is not only the Psalms. Remember, the 150 Psalms of the Old Testament can be somewhat neatly divided into three categories, sad, mad, and glad, but a third of them are sad, uh, and they're laments in the face of either heaven's seeming indifference or great injustices that have befallen the, the psalmist but even more so you find jesus himself in his moment of bitterest agony on the cross railing out by quoting a psalm one of the darkest psalms in the old testament psalm 22 my god my god why have you forsaken me why me He meant those words. Some people say, well, no, 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 he didn't mean that psalm. He was only quoting it there so that we would do the Bible study and know that Psalm 22 ended with with some happy phrases, and he wanted us to follow the bouncing ball all the way to the end where things all work out. Uh, In a word, no. Um, When Jesus prayed that psalm from the cross, he meant it as the great forsaken one. He absolutely meant every word that he uttered that day, including those about being forsaken, he expresses his agony, Mary and Martha express their agony, and you are free in the midst of your own personal crisis to express agony. And let me say, there is great spiritual detriment in not doing so. Containing it, playing the man, playing the woman, being the strong person, carrying through it. Nothing wrong with strength, but it's strength in God. And strength in God does not preclude honesty about your own grief. That's point one, the theme Agony. Point two, the theme of empathy. This passage is tear-sodden from every single angle, but I'm just going to read from verse 33 and 34. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had also come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Notice there's empathy in the Jews. Uh, the Jews is a catch-all phrase in John's Gospel, but it's at the same time a nuanced phrase. Sometimes it refers to the leadership of Israel that was antithetical to Jesus, but often it refers to all Israelites. And we see here that the Jews was mentioned sympathetically as people who were mourners, uh, deeply moved, and many of them, of course, believed in Jesus. But Um, I only mention that because some people assault the fourth gospel. John's gospel is being anti-Semitic. It's not. It's far more nuanced than people give it credit for because they often haven't read it closely. But in verse verse 33, um, Jesus is there to weep with Mary and Martha. It says over and over again that he was moved or deeply moved, troubled, and then finally he wept. It seems like the subject of death deeply troubles Jesus, because this language of having your gut twisted, which is not dissimilar to the the original language. The Greek mentions this as being a deeply troubling, agonizing sorrow that punches you again and again in the gut. It's the deepest kind of agony that somebody can experience and express emotionally. Jesus uses the same language of being troubled about himself when he's at the Last Supper looking down the barrel, so to speak, at his own forthcoming demise. And he says, now is my soul greatly troubled. And shortly thereafter, he started sweating blood in a garden while everybody else slept it off around him. The subject of death seemed to deeply unsettle Jesus. And so, he is deeply moved. And more than that, he evidences it in water. He weeps. Why did he weep? Let me just say that commentators have occasionally answered that question, why did Jesus weep, in a number of stupid ways. Here are two of them. Some say he was sad for Lazarus. That doesn't make any sense, because he was about to see his buddy again in about four minutes. Some people say and this is a much worse interpretation, that Jesus wept because he was very angry with people's lack of faith in him. So he's sort of weeping with a scolding spirit. He's mad that all these mourners are, well, mourning and wishes that they would celebrate by having faith in what he's about to do. Okay. Okay. The problem with that perspective is namely that this crowd is not filled with unbelievers. In fact, it was uh, was Martha herself who, before this whole miracle occurred, said to Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ who has come into the world. Whatever we can make of that phrase, it's not a lack of faith. He's not angry that people are crying. The hint of why Jesus is crying is in the word saw. Now, let's go back to verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. In other words, he's crying because they're crying. He's moved to see all of these people utterly devastated because we have in Jesus Christ a God who is empathetic, a God who feels what we feel, who takes it in. You do not have a God with a face of concrete, brothers and sisters. I think sometimes we often think of God as sort of the untouched archetype. But that's not a biblical understanding. The biblical understanding is of the incarnate God who becomes flesh and takes on himself the whole human experience with all of its drama and agony. And here we see not one of the Maui statues of Easter Island, Completely remote, removed, and unfeeling. But a God who is made of flesh and blood and who weeps with his people, who is empathetic, who cries when he sees us crying. He sees Mary, sees Martha, sees the Jews weeping, and weeps along with them. Um, That's the second theme, empathy. The third theme, remedy. Remedy. We need remedy, by the way. Uh, Because if we only had heaven's empathy, it could be a theology of misery loves company. Somebody who stands with us when we're agonized, but can't actually do anything about that agony. But Jesus is a very active Messiah, as well as a deeply feeling one. And so we see him apply a remedy. Um, Jesus uh, claims to embody the remedy, not just for Lazarus, but for all cemeteries. He says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life there's a universe of meaning in that phrase but let's just break it down a little bit the i am bit goes all the way back to god's self-disclosure of a sacred name that is the sacred name of himself given to moses in exodus 3 at the burning bush when moses asks about the name of god he gives him this paradoxical name i am that i am jesus frequently in john's gospel but not only in john's gospel Uh, Refers to himself with the divine name, the tetragrammaton, I am, as a way of cluing people in uh, to who he really is, his core identity. Well, Jesus asks these tear sodden women a very personal question after making that announcement about himself being resurrection and life. He says in verse 26 Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Now, I want you to notice Jesus is asking these mournful sisters a very specific theological question. He does not ask them about whether or not they believe in God in general, however they define God. Almost everyone at that scene would have in some way. He does not ask them if they believe in life after death, the potential that human beings can press on after they wither away due to cancer. He doesn't ask them about the human ability to achieve life after death. Because post the whole debacle of Eden, uh, we can't conjure that up on our own. Uh, He doesn't even ask Martha or Mary, do you believe that I, in and of myself, have the power to bring your dead brother back to life? He doesn't ask them that question. No, when Jesus asks, I am the resurrection and the life, do you believe this? He's asking Mary and Martha If they truly trust that he himself is the remedy, not only for Lazarus, but for the two of them in the future, for all the Jews who are there mourning, and for every human being who lives thereafter, do you believe, that is, that I hold the power over this universal malady, this malady that has killed everything that you've ever held dear and loved? Do you believe that I'm stronger than all of it? Therefore, that what I offer has universal implications that affect your particular mournful day. Do you believe that? That that's who I am, that that's what I embody, that that's the remedy I can offer? And notice how they respond in verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. Well, later in the story, Jesus applies the remedy. Verse 43 Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. Later, Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. This sign exposed Jesus's power more than any other. Yes, it is true that Jesus resuscitated the dead on other occasions. But those people had died very near the time when Jesus raised them back to life. Lazarus had been dead for several days to the point where decay. Had uh, begun. In fact, the King James put this quite uh, squarely. The King James Version says, Yea, Lord, he stinketh, uh, which communicates the crisis that Lazarus was experiencing in the grave. Uh, why is it impressive that Jesus is doing this on the fourth day? It's simply to send the message that in the hands of the one through whom all things were made, nothing and no one is too far gone nothing with a word god can create and with a word god can recreate so that's agony empathy and remedy offer you a closing pastoral word regarding each one very briefly agony some Christians are under the misapprehension that we cannot simultaneously believe in heaven, the afterlife, and an effective Christ, while at the same time expressing intense and agonizing grief. To do so would mean that you carry with you an anemic faith. Let me say, friends, Jesus never excoriated anyone for crying on the day of Lazarus' funeral. No tear was inappropriate. Uh, and Jesus never commanded his audience to dry their tears or shut their mouths. That grief is very present within the biblical record and, in fact, encouraged to express your agony, not hide it. Empathy. The incarnate Lord found it fitting not only to permit tears, but to shed them at a funeral for a friend. There is nothing quite as Christ-like, brothers and sisters, as weeping with those who weep. The grieving need your empathy and not your explanations. Remember what Job's friends did in the middle of his own personal crisis, when all of his children uh, lay in a parlor, uh, whenever he was devastated in his own personal health. What did his friends do? Well, for the first week, they loved him. But the second week, they got bored with loving him and started to try to peer behind heaven's curtain and understand the genius of heaven that would have permitted such a thing. And then they started to give Job explanations. Have you considered this? Have you considered that? And later they started to blame Job himself. God wouldn't have done this to you unless you triggered it through some sort of act of disobedience. Don't be that person. It doesn't help anybody. Um, You know, many of you have experienced miscarriages, Many in this room. Many of you have experienced the death of a loved one. And people, out of their own nervousness, have said some of the dumbest things possible to you. God needed their angel now rather than later. You know, God is using this in your life to make you a better disciple. Please, for the sake of all of those who grieve, never say stupid things like that. It is just not the time. There are times to use passages like God disciplines those whom he loves, but how about we wait till the funeral is over, and then wait about 25 years, okay? Yeah, and that passage shouldn't be applied to situations of death, but that's beside the point. So agony, empathy, and then remedy. Friends, regarding death, there was an exception, one whole Stabbed into the black veil that is lowered at our own personal curtain calls. And that exception was not Lazarus. Because Lazarus himself would have a second funeral. His sisters would again be tear-sodden. And he would be placed in the same tomb that he was raised out of years prior. The exception was the man who died and rose again and would never die again. The man who called himself resurrection and life. And this same Jesus has promised you and promised me that he would cross oceans of time to find us at our neediest and to raise us up, body and soul. A risen Jesus, friends, is the only remedy for our ultimate crisis, the crisis that we are all doomed to die. There is no other remedy that I can offer you today. Nothing else but a very risen Jesus can be the adequate enemy of the last enemy. Only a risen Christ can overcome death. I experienced this, um, I could say secondhand, uh, in an event that occurred in 2018. I recognized my own limitations and the necessity for Christ's interventionist uh, behavior and involvement. In 2018, I had a somber visit with two former members of Grace Anglican. They now live in North Carolina. Uh, The two of them met at Grove City College, attended Grace Anglican, and I had the privilege of officiating at their wedding. A few weeks before my visit, and certainly the event that triggered my visit, was that the two of them experienced a devastating car accident. The two of them survived the wreckage, but their five-year-old son was instantly killed. I drove south, and I visited them. We embraced... We cried, we sat very still in the living room where the five-year-old's pictures were still on the wall, all of his drawings. Um, And I listened as they recounted the event of the accident as well as their grief and their rage and actually a lot of their self-hatred. I felt very helpless, obviously, because I couldn't really offer much I could offer presents, and that's something, but it's not what's really needed. My words certainly were of no use. No sentiments, no matter how well phrased, can ever um, put back the shards of a shattered life. They needed more than me. They needed more than hugs. They needed more than listening. They needed more than a therapist. They needed more than meals. They needed more than money. They needed more than the church. They needed more than each other. They needed the one exception. They needed the exceptional Christ who was and is and who will always be, the resurrection and the life, who alone can remedy our mortality. We need the exceptional Christ to give us back all the people we've lost, our mothers and our fathers, our grandparents, our friends, our miscarried children, and our five-year-old sons. The account of Lazarus testifies to something. We do, in fact, live within a world in which our teacups shatter when they strike the ground. But strangely enough, shattered teacups do, in fact, come back together. Because in Christ, we are not too far gone, ever, Jesus said it with unmistakable clarity. I am the resurrection and the life. We can only learn so much and live. Amen.